Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Neil Lynn. Hi Nia, how's things for you? Hello Kieran, hello everybody. What a day. <laughs> How, how's things with you? How's your lockdown going? Uh, well, it's it feels like there's a little bit of uh, a silver lining around the lockdown mm. Cumul cloud. We're starting to come out of it a little bit, I think. But the last four months have been very interesting. You know, mm. um, actually, I've managed to to be quite productive. I think in I know there are several people, lots of people that I know that have found lockdown really hard and mm. um, uh, you know terribly restricting. But I've actually quite enjoyed it <laughs> because. Um, in my normal life and my normal work, I'm mm. travelling all the time. I'm on trains and planes, yeah. and it's very rare that I spend more than a couple of nights a week in my own bed. So I've really enjoyed having time at home and um, you know time to to work and practice and do all the things I've been wanting to do for ages. So it's I, okay. I suppose it must be nice to you to have that kind of time to kind of think and consider and to have that kind of stillness that you won't have had in your day-to-day working life yeah and it's made me it's made me realize how important as you say the time to contemplate and you know having time to be still and um i think it affords us the ability to go a little bit deeper rather than broad Mm. you know it gives us time to actually go a bit deeper in into things, which is, it's been great. Yeah, oh, good. Um, I want to kind of start at the beginning and ask you, how did you first get interested in the arts? Oh, well, um, I think it's, I think it's, we're very lucky in Wales in the sense that we have the Estefford system mm-hmm you know, um, given to all schools in the medium of Welsh, you know, you're sort of encouraged to sing and dance and mm. do both at the same time while painting and trying to write a, you know, essay on the new science thing <laughs> <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I was competing in a Stedvod from a very, very young age, you know, the earliest age possible. And, um, but really my, my father and my mother are very creative people. Right. My father's a great singer. Um, he sings with a band called the Huntus, um, and he used to sing with Shun when uh, you know in the seventies. So um, he's always encouraged me musically to sing, and 
But so I said Vods and then, you know, when I was younger, there were some great youth theatres, um, mm. theatre, Gwent Young People's Theatre, which is uh, over in Abergavenny, was over in Abergavenny, Sherman Youth Theatre in Cardiff. Um, you know, so I just, I, mm. I think youth theatre is so important. So many people that I work with on a professional level um, have, have done things through youth theatre. So I think that's where... That's where it all kicked off. <laughs> and where did you, when did you kind of start to see it as something that you wanted to do um, as a profession? Was that kind of immediate, that you had that kind of drive immediately? Or did that kind of come later? Uh, to be to be totally honest, I, when I was at, I was quite bad at school. I, um, I sort of, even though I've done lots of qualifications since, <laughs> um, my early sort of education and relationship with education was quite difficult. So I, um, I didn't read a lot in those days. I do read a lot now, but I didn't read a lot, and my spelling was bad. And then I later discovered I was dyslexic. You know, so right. I had a, a bit of a troubled time with school. So I didn't really think there was anything else I could do. I mean, I could sing, mm. and um, I was quite good with jumping around on stage um, but I I genuinely didn't think there was anything else I could do particularly I mean I never thought I'd be a teacher you know so um, no. so yeah it's all it's uh, it was pretty pretty much from the get-go that I was like well I'm gonna sing or do something with the arts I didn't quite know what but and, and was it just I want I want to sing um, and I'm gonna do that whatever means necessary that you didn't necessarily know what that path was but you knew that you wanted to do it but you didn't know how to get there yes uh yeah exactly and and um again you know my uh, luckily my my family have always been very encouraging but also um i had a great music teacher in in the school that i was at who um was really proactive in in helping me find places to audition. I, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't know that there were such thing as music colleges that you could kind of go and just study music. Right. You know, I, did, I had no idea. Um, and, you know, he was very proactive and actually, you know, filled in the audition form for me. And, you know, <laughs> and suddenly I got this audition date through the post. Mm. And I was like, oh, Mr. Marshall, what have you done? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, Exactly, I knew, and even actually, I think that's something throughout your career. You know, you know, you want to do something, mm. but you're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. I think, well, you'll have that experience from the acting that you've done. You know, that you've sort of got, you've got a sort of an idea of what's going to happen. But yeah, it always turns out differently to what you expect, and I think that's the same with with every career and every journey, it's always a little bit different. I think that's the same with every kind of project you go into, you have this preconception of what it's going to be like. Yeah. And then it challenges you in ways that you didn't think it was going to. And I think that's true for everything we do in life, every kind of thing we we undertake. And yes, you, you've, yeah. got, you've got to be prepared for those challenges to come along, I think. Yeah, and also the the um, as you say, you know, the the end is end result is is 
always different to what you expect, mm. but quite often it's a lot better. Yes, <laughs> that's, so, that's true. If you're open to it, if you're open mm. to it, which I know you are. But you've got to go into it with an open mind, as you say. Um, so you studied at um, Guildhall. Um, what, what was your time there like, and kind of how did it prepare you for your future career? Um, did you kind of, when did you kind of know that you wanted to be a voice coach? When did that kind of come about? Oh, yeah, that's a, it's quite an interesting, um, it, it, well, it's not an interesting, but it's a bit of a higgledy-piggledy right. path. So I went to Guildhall and did a four-year undergraduate music degree, specialising in jazz singing. Okay. Um, at the time, I was only the second jazz singer there, so it was a very instrumental-based course, and... The, the school sort of put me and one other jazz singer, her name's Natalie Williams, she's great, um, in with a lot of classical work. So we ended mm. up having to learn arias and leader in German and French and Italian. And and that training was actually very good from a linguistic point of view, you know. Right, yeah. Um, but the, the improvising side of jazz uh, and, and learning the sort of new language that goes along with that, I think is is a transferable skill that I never thought would transfer into the some the more improvised nature of theatre. Yeah. Um and, and working with with um people from you know all ages and abilities. Um and of course I, I learned a lot about singing and about breathing and, and all of those sort of things. And then my second master my, my first master, sorry, at, at Guildhall was in a, a title called creative learning well actually at the time it was called leadership which all sounds a bit militant but um, <laughs> it changed it since to creative learning and that was an, an amazing experience of learning to teach and run workshops mm. and again through music but um, as a singer I sort of got given the task of being in charge of words as well you know and lyrics and doing lyric writing projects with people and Traveling around the world, really doing different projects wow. with people in, in uh, you know camps in the desert to in in hospitals and prisons and mm. um, people of all ages, you know, nursing homes, n nurseries, you know? yeah. um, and that that would that gave me a real feel for for you know collaborative music making and collaborative art making and. Um, and I really, I really knew that that was that the collaborative process was something that that really that I really enjoyed. Would you say that music was able to cross those international borders and cultural divides and find kind of connections between you and people who were on the face of it quite different from you in terms of what they'd experienced? Yeah, I think I think music is actually one of it, it. Even though it's it's a difficult thing because it's um, you know, it's not tangible. You can't hold mm. the sound. You know. Um, yeah. So, so you so it, it's this slightly ethereal thing, and and there are very strong cultural identities within music, but there are also the 
the international language is that of resonance for me. You know that you hit a you hit a drum somewhere, and and we feel it as humans. We feel that vibration. So it doesn't matter whether it's an African drum or a Scottish drum. It's the vibration that we feel as humans is is the same. Yeah. And I think that's why music is a powerful tool, but also why voice in theatre is a powerful tool. You know because. Uh, and, and well, and movement and breathing, because as soon as you've got two people in a room breathing together, then mm. I think those international um, differences and physical differences, mental skin color differences, they all melt away, you know, because you realize you both breathe and you're both human. Mm. <laughs> and I guess there can be an, an anxiety about that at the start of a process before those values are broken down. And when they are, I guess there's a release of that. Yeah, well, you've you've experienced the, the warm-ups that I've done, mm. you know, when we did the Hamlet project, but that, that a lot of my job is that, actually. It's, it's sort of a glorified peacemaker, really. <laughs> so I sort of... It, it, the warm-up and the sort of standing in the circle and getting to know each other and breathing together... Um, it is so important, as you say, because until then, the, the anxiety of the individual coming into a new space um, can be the thing that stops um, the, that collaborative process being something that's easy mm. and fun and challenging, but in the right ways. And um, a lot of my job is about making people feel more relaxed, more in their bodies, more open, more ready. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether you found that, but I think we we had quite quite long warm ups, didn't we, on that mm. <laughs> Hamlet project? For me, uh, generally, with especially kind of kind of physical stuff and kind of speech and language stuff, when I'm in a room where the majority of people there don't. It's definitely a CP thing, and I get kind of self-conscious because, you know, my speech isn't as good as most people because of my CP. And, you know, there's stuff that physically I can't do, but being that moment made me feel kind of relaxed and that it was okay and getting to know my own body in a way and not comparing myself to other people does that make sense yeah hugely and and also i think there's a lot to be said with um you know that the, the physical boundaries actually in terms of people being aware of them it is it, the variants are huge you can have somebody who's you know on on the surface totally able-bodied you know mm. and and have quick speech but what they actually say is quite often rubbish you know yeah <laughs> i've noticed that <laughs> and, but... and sometimes they're moving so unaware that mm. it, it can take a long time whereas if you've got somebody who is intelligent and and has time to uh you know needs to think about forming their words i wish more people would you know yeah because um, what comes out is a very intelligent question and and we end up having 
just a little bit more mm. awareness in the room, which is always what we're trying to aim for. I think in the room, I'm aware of that, and I don't know. I think it's just me. I think it's a personal thing. Being aware of the barriers and the boundaries and the difficulties. But as you say, if we all had that awareness, you know... You're very different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, can you kind of explain what the role of a voice coach is within the theatrical context? Uh, you know... Yes. Go on. Is there more to the question? Kind of, what is your role on a production? And is it the same process for you every time? Or does it change depending on what you're working on? Um... Yeah, so I did, um, after Guildhall, I went to Central School of Speech and Drama and did my second master's there in it to be a voice coach, Um, mainly because I I realised that there were a lot of gaps in my own knowledge in terms of, of, you know, working with people. I knew how to breathe, but I didn't know what the muscle in between my rib was called, you know, so right. I, I wanted to get a bit more depth of that information. Um, and through that, I, I, I learned a lot in terms of different approaches, mm-hmm. um, how to, you know, in terms of learners. So we've got some people that are kinesthetic learners. I suppose we've just been talking about some of them. Yeah. Kinesthetic learners, visual learners, um, some people need to, you know, hear Mm. something and then they can say it back. So um, if you're thinking every time that you enter a room room with new actors in it that you don't know, one of my things that I have to be very aware of is the fact that everybody's a slightly different learner, Mm. which means that any anything that we're trying to achieve has to be delivered in quite a lot of different ways until I figure out what kind of learner they are and then we can we can run with it you know so yeah the role of the voice coach really we get brought in um for for lots of different reasons the most common one that people will sort of think about is accents Mm -hmm. so um accents and dialects on a show um, is a very different job to being a voice coach on a show because actually the dialect coach tends to sit in a little room at the back of the theatre and on the call during the day you've got little half an hour slots with the dialect coach and you go in and he or she sits right. there and then they go okay so how's your um, Australian accent coming on <laughs> you know <laughs> depending yeah. on what the accent of the show is okay and and my job is to help them find where that accent lives in their mouth Mm. and look at the text quite often and sort of pick it apart and go well this vowel is the one that it's taking you to glasgow rather than australia you know so i see yeah that's quite my new shy um text and you know very phonetics and all of those sort of things which i personally love because it's the sound of accents um, you know, is uh, reminiscent of my music training, so it, yeah. it it feels quite similar in some ways. And then the voice coach side is when you've got actors or um, a group of people that may have a, a difficult space to work in. So, for example, when we did uh, Macbeth, get a theatre, get a Cymru, mm. 
that was in an old castle, you know, and, and right. lots of different rooms. So a big room, big stone room, but with weird acoustics because of the mm. shape of the room. And then a massive hall and there was a little scene outside. And so quite often it's then trying to equip the actors with very specific muscular work that they need to do or right. resonance work that they need to do to help them feel that they can command the space a bit more. Um, or, you know, it, sometimes it's literally just to um, get get the company as an ensemble to sound together. So if you've got if you've got the right budget, you know, you could have a couple of mornings every morning with me and <laughs> and the company would would learn to breathe together. So going back to that ensemble collaborative work and um, which uh, I've done lots of that sort of that work with people that aren't actors as well. So I did a coaching with the Premier League coaches oh, a couple of times um, just to get them to kind of understand how to breathe and sound and um, feel, in, feel in their bodies and their voices a bit more. So voice work extends to business people, actors, singers. How, how do non-actors respond to it? You mentioned the Premier League coaches as opposed to actors. Do you get a lot much resistance to what you're trying to do or are they generally on board with it? Um, it, it takes a while. There's normally a little bit of initial resistance because I think for us as, as creative people, we understand that it's okay to be a bit silly and surreal. You know, yeah. that it's okay to kind of shake on the spot and do oh, weird yeah. sounds. But we for I forget that the majority of people in the world <laughs> think that's a really weird thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so of course you you know, and this goes back to the different the different approaches, you know. So I wouldn't I wouldn't go straight in to um, jumping and, and doing strange sounds with non-actors. I'd probably go a little bit slower and talk more logically in terms of using my anatomy and all those, you know. So I'd probably take them a bit slower and then suddenly half an hour in they find they are, they are mm. doing silly games, but it doesn't feel so weird, you know. It's about easing them into that rather than throwing it all on top of them. Right yeah. from the very beginning. Otherwise, they run away. <laughs> um, so, you were voice and text coach at the Royal Shakespeare Company between 2010 and 2016. Um, what are the challenges in terms of working on a classical text as a voice coach as opposed to a contemporary play? Uh, good question. I I often find the work itself, in terms of unpicking text, um, contemporary texts often often get sort of brushed over because because they're contemporary and people feel that they understand it easier, you know. Whereas when you're speaking old English, it. The, the meanings aren't necessarily as as available to us as as uh, contemporary text, but there is there's so much scope for um, 
the same sort of inquiry, really, the same sort mm. of text inquiry in contemporary as there is in classical. I suppose the, the big challenge or the, the main difference is the fact that Shakespeare's writing doesn't just exist within one sort of construct, you know, so it's not just prose. Quite often there is rhyme in there, there's meter in there. Sometimes there's rhyme but no meter, sometimes there's meter but no rhyme. Sometimes yeah. there's rhyme and meter together, <laughs> inter sort of interjected with somebody else speaking prose. So the rhythm of the language uh, and and why those characters are speaking in that way is is the main hurdle to to sort of understand because Shakespeare particularly but other classical writers as well would have chosen a very specific rhythm and language for each character so you may have yeah. a character like um Hippolyta in Midsummer Night's Dream who's who speaks very very um I mean, she uses some odd words sometimes, but she's there's a there's a real definite rhythm mm. to them, you know. And then you've got fairies who speak in totally different rhythms. And so it's it's quite a specific choice that the writers made to give them those rhythms. And I think once we understand that, why they're using the language in the way that they mm. are, then then the rest of it just becomes you know play. You can just play with yeah. it. And do you think there's kind of a tendency to be a bit precious with Shakespeare sometimes and not kind of allow yourself to play with the text and explore because it's Shakespeare? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I think there there is a lot of that and I think a lot of that comes from people, people thinking that... Uh, the people that should understand Shakespeare have to be really clever. Mm. So if you understand yeah. Shakespeare, then you're really, really clever. And, and most people, quite humbly, don't put themselves in that bracket. So mm. they immediately feel, oh, that's not for me. That, that language yeah. isn't for me. Um, which I think also comes from the fact that we study it and, and revere it in our school system. And, and he is a wonderful writer, but he is just a writer. Yeah. And, and the words are, are written to be spoken, you know, not to be analysed. I think the way so I think the way it's looked at in schools, especially within English literature is very you you read it rather than it being something to be performed. But yeah, the, exactly. the these are performance texts. So why can't they be looked at as such? within an educational context. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's, the RSC actually had, um, had a relationship with a, a great school in Manhattan, which I went to a couple of times to, to train the teachers out there um, in rehearsal room pedagogy, which is what we call it. You know, when you're actually right. trying to get rehearsal room, the way that the rehearsal room works into your classroom. Um, and the teachers in this particular school, you know, they were really open to it and um, it really transformed the way that they do their English lessons because instead of everybody coming in and sitting down, the first first thing that we changed was everybody comes in and moves the tables and chairs to the side. Mm. You know, and everybody was standing in a circle with their piece of text, playing playing rehearsal room games. Yeah, and then they'd sit down and analyze what they'd just done and write an essay about it. But 
I think you're right, Kieran. There's a there's a long way to go in terms of changing the way that um, text generally or um, plays, particularly Shakespeare, is taught in schools. And I think if we can get people to speak it, it will become the the wealth of knowledge and fun that's in the text will be available to everyone, which it should be. And it shouldn't be something that people are scared of or that they kind of recoil from. Um, yeah. It needs to kind of be made more inclusive, and I think, you know, things like the Shakespeare Schools Festival and programs like that, you know, mm. are really good in terms of making it more accessible, and we need more of that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, what what are the common kind of mistakes or bad habits that you notice actors? kind of pick up uh, and what what do you try and do to kind of reverse those or help in alleviating those um well the 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 big one that everybody tends to fall into understandably so actually because it's related to nerves i think right is that they forget to breathe as <laughs> simple as that they forget to breathe and what happens when you know when you when you forget to breathe or when you start getting tenses you inhale and the body sort of stays muscularly in that tense position right so then you end up not being able to walk properly because yeah. your body's so tense because you haven't breathed and then the voice comes out all weird and you know so it's a knock-on effect really you get tight voices, lots of pushing, lots of physical tension. And and actually, if the first thing that releases most of that is just to remember to breathe. You know, so if, yeah. if I can just remind people to breathe, which often <laughs> is what I do. I sit on the side of the stage and I just go, breathe, <laughs> breathe. Uh, and you know. do actors sometimes need to be taught? how to breathe, how diaphragmatic breath works, and the kind of mechanics of that. Yeah, they do. And interestingly enough, it's, you know, I think um, even, even profession, actually some of the worst breathers that I've met are, are old, very experienced professional actors, <laughs> you know, because right. they've, they've done some training normally sort of in the 50s or 60s when actually the concept was and it was actually taught in drama schools in the 50s was that you inhale and you hold your ribs up for as long as you possibly can until you've got all the text out of the way then you quickly exhale inhale again and hold your ribs up which of course leads to that tension that we were just talking about often terrible terrible voice use so um just trying to encourage them to allow the ribs to close and you know let your body do the breath naturally let your diaphragm engage with that movement mm. is is, um, is is very tricky young actors tend to be a little bit more open to right. to that because they've had sort of more contemporary training but it can be really tough especially if they're very famous because then they don't want somebody yeah. telling them that they can't breathe <laughs> so you have to be very careful have, have you had situations where actors have said, 
I'm not being that only reacted adversely to what you've you've suggested. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, that is that's definitely part of the course, um, and something you have to, you know, in the same way that I, if you're interested in directing, you'll get very resistant actors, even if you are the director, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's getting a little easier. I mean. It's often the 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 biggest resistance that I've experienced is often from old older men, right? You know who, especially when I was at the RSC, you know, it feels like a long time ago now. So I must have seemed very young to some of those old older experienced actors. You know, they they don't want a sort of young young whippersnapper of a girl coming in telling them how to breathe <laughs> but you know so at the, at, you have to you have to again it goes back to different approaches and you have to find a different way to to try and encourage them and, and also you have to learn to stand your ground which is really difficult you know and you have to sort of be able to say no actually um, I'm really sorry but this this is really important mm. and it's really important that you learn how to do this um, and it's my job to do that, you know. So you have to learn to yeah. stand your ground, which can be difficult. And command some degree of authority, I guess, so that they will listen to you. Yes, and that, and that's when, you know, knowledge is power, you know. that's The, the mm. more you know about your subject, the more you can do that quite easily. Um, I'm going to move on slightly. Um, you've been an accent coach with spoken about this briefly on a number of productions including Night of the Iguana by Tennessee Williams at the NoCower Theatre and Murky Peaks by Cyril Davis at Theatre Cloyd. What what do you think is the key to mastering an accent and what techniques can actors use to develop an accent? Hmm. Well, it's quite a quite a complicated process in one way, and then it's very simple in the other. Um, the 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 biggest key, really, and and the saving grace when you when you get an actor that has this tool, um, then it can become very simple. Is is the ability to listen, to actually be able not just to listen but to hear. The difference between an ah or an ah, you know, which very right. very similar sounds, similar shape, but the, there's a huge difference in the middle of it, you know. And if you've got a good ear as an actor, your ability to hear accents will will be uh, much stronger. And um, the aware, you know, going back to our thing about awareness, actually, is yeah. The, the, Thing is the awareness of what's happening in your body so if I am aware where my tongue is when I'm making a particular noise then if I need to move my tongue I can I can change that you know so um, it go, comes back to muscular awareness and being able to to hear things you know mm. hear, have a good ear so I suppose if if you are interested in doing accents one of the one of the best things to do is just to listen to lots of different sounds, you know, to 
to extend your listening um, and start getting an inner ear kind of in here a little bit more. So right. listening is, is really important. And, and are there certain accents that are kind of more difficult for you to kind of teach as an accent coach and other ones that you struggle with more? Um, uh, yeah, I suppose saying that though, all accents have got uh, kind of um, a, an opposite to the rule, you know. So there are some accents that are that are very complicated. So, for example, well, not very complicated, but more complicated. So, for example, the Boston accent has uh, sometimes it has a rhotic R in it, a R sound. And, but then on the other side, sometimes it has a flat car instead right. of car, you know? Yeah. So there's a, when, when you've got accents that have those sort of um, anomalies or rules that shift, they can, they can be tricksy. But most accents can be broken down. I mean, all accents can be broken mm. down. And that's when the phonetics is useful. So if you, if you know your phonetic, international phonetic alphabet... <laughs> which as a Welsh speaker, it becomes very simple. Yes. You're like, oh, it's that sound and yeah. that has a new symbol, you know? Because yeah. Welsh is a phonetic language. So, um, it yeah, the phonetic alphabet's very useful. I personally try as little as possible to do the accent in an accent session. Right. Um, because I don't want to interfere with the sound of the actor's voice in their head. So um, I'm very good at teaching accents, but that doesn't mean I can do all of them. I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you let the actors kind of discover that for themselves or find that rather than being taught. Yeah. Um, so in terms of um, creative freedom, how much do you get as a voice coach in terms of how the play sounds and how much um, do you have to adhere to the director's vision in terms of how it sounds? Hmm, that's, it's totally dependent on the director. Um, some directors that I've worked with are very much in the thinking that voice coaches should be spoken to uh, and and not heard, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you sit at the back of the room with your little notepad for seven hours. You haven't spoken mm. all day. You make a couple of little notes. Uh, you know, sometimes when the director turns around and goes, "Oh, can you just find out what that Greek pronunciation is?" You know. Yeah. So that's it. <laughs> you know, that's the extent of it, and it's very very dull, and um, a waste of time and money. I think when you. And you're doing that so in that case you have no say really you work with the actors on their own if mm. they need help um but because you haven't got any status in the rehearsal room those can be really difficult jobs you know because yeah yeah the, the director isn't isn't creating a, an ethos that voice work is important <clears throat> there are other directors however that are um you're there from the get-go um, you know, there's a wonderful director that I know called Polly Findlay, 
who um, she does. She's worked everywhere: the Bridge, the National, the RSC. Actually, we met at the RSC, um, and she's very much, you know, she'll sort of go, Nia, do something, just do right. you, you know, do something, you know. So, yeah. but she'll watch. She'll watch the the session, and she'll go. Actually, that's mm. a really interesting way bringing out those that character dynamics i'm going to use this in you know yeah. and then suddenly it's it's actually led to a bit of a staging of that scene okay so that's a very collaborative process with the director which is which is lovely and so it all depends on on how the, the relationships really in the room between the, the creative team um are really important and for you is it about building a relationship with a director and you know finding out if you have that shared vision from the get-go and from the outset from the minute you get into the rehearsal room yeah i think i think actually um it's it's less about my vision as a voice coach right it's my my job really it is to support the director's vision you know so the director will yeah. have the vision my job is to try and support what the director wants in the process. What's lovely yeah. is that when the work that I do changes the director's vision, do you see what I mean? Oh, so, I see, yeah, yeah. So my job is to support the director's vision always, um, you know, and that's, but but when you have got good relationships with, with, with each other, you can have those conversations that it feels more like a collaboration then. Cool. Uh, having worked with theatre again as a solo company, are there any differences in terms of working in Welsh as opposed to working in English? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, generally, the Welsh actors that I've met, most of them, uh, because I think of, of the musicality of our language, mm. uh, they have got good ears, you know, so actually they're, they're really good at doing accents and, and character work. Um, and they're a lot freer vocally than, than a lot of right. English actors that I've met. Um, but my, my work is, is really kind of the same. That The hardest thing with Welsh actors is to get rid of that um, Esteddfod performative thing that I'm comes sure. across sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's when, you know, we we go into the rather than the naturalistic thing so both languages have their have their issues and um yeah. areas that, that need further work but no there's there's no difference particularly in my process what i found with welsh is it tends to be a lot kind of naturally faster we speak i speak quicker in welsh than i do in english do you, have you ever found that with working with actors, having to kind of slow them down or ground them a bit more in Welsh? Yeah, potentially. Maybe, I mean, we have got, well, it feels like we've got more consonants in Welsh, doesn't it? Yes. And um, consonants are what give us the rhythm, you know, underneath the text. So, um, yeah, I can I can. But then there are also, you know, there are people from, um, where is it, um, Stoke, Stoke, St people from Stoke, I, there's a couple of actors that I've worked with, 
so fast, so fast. You just, you know, so everybody's every individual yeah. actor as well as every individual language has got its own rhythm. So yeah. sometimes you've got to speed people up and slow people down. You know, depending on how how yeah. well they're articulating. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you were voice coach on the RSC's production of Matilda. Um, how does working on a musical differ from working on a play? Um, yeah, it's there are sort of immediate issues that come up, um, particularly now, you know, because musicals tend to be microphones, so everybody's got a little mic in their yeah. hairline somewhere. Um, and you know they've got to sing and dance at the same time. So quite often, the you're having to work in in a very specific and very fast way because there are so many people involved in a musical. There's the MD, there's the movement yeah. person, there's the director, there's the chaperones. There's there are so many people, and and the amount of time that you have, I think, is a little less. Then you have on text because also everything is in meter, so you have the pulse of the music yeah. dictating for you how fast you have to speak or uh, walk across stage. Or yeah, so quite often it's about trying to find moments in the in the musical where you know, for example, um, in Matilda, the Matilda is on a rake, which means that the stage is on on a, a rake like this. Right. And it's quite a big rake so a lot of the work was trying to combat uh, the rake in terms of people's alignment so quite often in tech or things I'd be in the wings speaking to one of the actors saying remember to bend your knees because your head and neck is sticking out and that's going to make your voice go so quite yeah. often but I've only got two seconds to deliver that note you know and then I've got to <laughs> run around and see something else so it's 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 a bit more um you know, lots of cooks trying to just stop yeah. the pans bubbling over. <laughs> do, do you feel more like you're kind of fighting fires as opposed to kind of implementing what you want to implement? Yeah, and, and I think this goes back to the process, actually. The, the, more, uh, the more voice coaches can get in there at the beginning, you know, mm. the very first week, Get the, get the foundations done, give the voice coach some time, and then the actors have got that information in their bodies then. What happens is quite often people, some companies bring me in on the last week, so in tech, because right. somebody's lost their voice. So I'll get a phone call saying, oh, we're having trouble, somebody's lost their voice, or we can't really hear so-and-so, can you come in? Which, of course, is literally just putting a plaster on something, because... They've had six weeks of rehearsal where they've been working the muscle memory of that yeah. incorrect behavior. So you can't undo six weeks of muscle memory in an hour, which which people expect me to do quite a lot of the time. So they ask you to kind of deconstruct everything and build it back up within an hour. I know. It's, it's ridiculous. Insane. But it shows how little understanding a lot mm. of people have of how important the process is, you know. It's almost like it's not valued, like it's always an afterthought. 
uh, when something goes wrong from what you've said. Yeah, yeah, some, <clears throat> some productions and companies and directors have that opinion and it's, um, it can sometimes be a budget thing, you know, quite often the, the, the first people to not be on a production will be a movement director and a voice coach. Right. You know, because they're the sort of ones you can get away without having if you've got a strong cast and they're fine. Yeah. But then quite often we're the people that get drafted in last minute because that strong cast have fallen apart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just, just being valued, I guess you want to feel valued. Hmm. It is, it's, quite, it's quite a difficult scenario to be in, those scenarios. But luckily... As, as my career has gone on, those scenarios are getting less, possibly because I'm able to say no to them more, you know? So yeah. I can say, no, I'm not going to come in and fix, you, <laughs> fix your problems. You should have thought of that in week one. <laughs> <laughs> the, the last thing I want to ask you is, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry? Or kind of what advice do you wish that you'd been given when you were starting out? Oh, that's a good question. I think actually it goes back to sort of where we started, which is that that idea of trying to follow something or or chase something, but knowing that it's it's never going to look as you think it's going to look, you know, yeah. it'll, it'll never come out the way you think it's going to, and that that's okay, and that the ability to sort of let things go a bit is uh, definitely something I wish I was, I had mm. somebody telling me a bit more when, at the beginning of my career particularly, you know, it's it's okay to, for it not to be perfect, because, yeah. It might not be perfect in your eyes, but in someone else's eyes, it's it's absolutely mm. perfect, you know. So, uh, just just to be, you know, follow follow your follow your heart and do what you need to do, you know. Because I think as creative people, it is a it's a calling rather than just kind of a hobby, you know. Yes. But to know that it's it's okay to to be nice to yourself in in that scenario as well, and. To forgive yourself if it hasn't quite come out the way you thought it was going to mm. be, because everything it all changes in terms of it's, it never looks the same as you think it's going to. So. No, no, that's a really good advice. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's been brilliant talking yeah. to you. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, I will catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown With, where my guest will be Connor Allen, who's a writer and actor from Newport. Uh, but until then, it's goodbye for me. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced, and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, 
please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.